All right, what's going on, everybody? Welcome to Wednesday night here at Journey the Church. Very grateful that you're here tonight. Go ahead, grab your seat. Make sure you're at a table with other people because we're going to be doing some table talk tonight. It's good to be here. Hey, before you step out, I think there's a little reverb on the mic. How was dinner tonight? Was that good? Delicious. Wonderful worship. Ken, it's love to, I love to hear from your heart. Give it up for Ken one more time on communion. And thank you for being here, too. A lot of different places you could be here tonight, but you decided to come and join us, come and worship and put, put God first, right? That's what we're here to do tonight. Uh, last week, if you were with us, we uh, changed things up a little bit. We prayed for those who were experiencing the uncertainty and despair and uh, unpredictability of the easy fire. And it was strange because after we prayed in groups uh, for various things, for people who were, you know, maybe going to lose their home or first responders or people who were just panicking, uh, we prayed for everybody. And then on Thursday, which was Halloween, it's just, I was like blown away. I'm like, wow, the weather seems to have changed. Our prayers have been answered. The fire is going out. And then all of a sudden, Soma starts uh, lighting up. You know, and uh, then we go through a whole nother ordeal. Um, but thanks for being here tonight. Uh, you know, tonight we're going to dive into a difficult passage that I mentioned last week. I wasn't going to talk last week about how all the world is guilty of sin, especially on a night when people are frustrated or, or stressing out because of a fire. But tonight, that's what we're going to talk about. So uh, you can't leave right now. Everyone will notice if you do. But we're going to have fun with this tonight as well. You know, it's been uh, uncanny to me. It's been so just mysterious and strange to me, the, the similarities, and you might agree, the similarities that I find between myself and Indiana Jones. You know, brilliant, check. Fearless, check. Academic, check. Model-esque, check, check. <laughs> Fascination with the ancient world, check. Romantic, half a check. We'll give half a check there. Cynic, check, check, check. The staff would add a bunch of uh, more checks to that. But, but whether any of those similarities are true is highly debatable. And honestly, the only true similarities that I have with Indiana Jones, probably fascination with the ancient world and cynic. Uh, but there's one similarity that's truer than the rest, and it's hatred of, or, well, I'll just be honest, fear of snakes. Check, 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 check. You know, snakes just ain't my thing. 
Snakes on a plane, snakes on a train, snakes in my house, snakes in your house, snakes that are big or small, Uh uh-uh, just ain't my thing. I mean, you saw what a snake did in the garden, right? Genesis chapter 3, not a good move there. Instigator of the downfall between the relationship of God and humanity, yeah, snakes ain't my thing. Who else is with me on that? Wow, we have a big snake population, lovers back there. Weird. Uh, Found out second service loves cats. First service does not like cats, but you guys apparently like snakes. Well, not my thing. You know, they slither around silently, creeping up, doing that whole weird tongue flittering thing. It's disgusting, right? No ears, weird eyes. No larynx or, or vocal cords, and yet they still can, can create this awful hissing sound. And, and you know, I have a rule of thumb that I live by. If an animal is hissing at me, you better book it. Snakes, they also got all these ways to kill you, too. Scare you to death, choke you to death, bite you, poison you, swallow you with their stretchy jaws. Straight up cold-blooded. Ain't my thing. But what's uncanny to me, so mysterious and strange, is that when I read Paul's words to the church at Rome, and when I also take a long, hard look in the mirror, to be honest with you, I don't find as many similarities between myself and Indiana Jones as I do with snakes. Straight up, cold-blooded, ain't-my-thing snakes. Because the life of sin apart from God has many snake-like traits. And how easy it is to slither down that path, shedding value, purpose, and calling to become snake-like instead of Christ-like. So we're going to sink our teeth into it tonight. Up to this point, uh, Paul has been communicating in this letter to the church at Rome some rather gloomy things. It's been doom and gloom since chapter 1. Everybody's jacked up. All y'all are full of sin, Jew and Gentile alike, each and every one of you. Whether you're a Jew who, you know, you cut your penis as a sign of covenant relationship with God and have the law to guide you, that's what circumcision is. Or whether you're a Gentile non-Jew who has the ability to see God's moral law upon the fabric of nature, you are without excuse. You are without excuse for your sin And also for your wrongdoing. You are in need of a savior. You are in need of somebody to make you right with God. Well, at least that is the conclusion that we are heading toward. But we haven't reached it yet. Not tonight. But next week we will. Tonight's passage is sobering. And it's the opposite of uplifting. But it's honest and true, even if we don't want it to be. So if you're able to stand, I want to invite you to stand. We'll read from Romans chapter 3, our first verse, verse 9. 
says, well then, should we conclude that we Jews are better than others? No, not at all. For we have already shown that all people, whether Jews or Gentiles, are under the power of sin. And God, that, that is so true, that this life apart from Christ is hopeless. But we thank you for Jesus. And not to spill the beans, but there's a whole change that happens to that life of sin and to that power of sin when Jesus enters in. And so, Lord, we ask you to, to be here with us tonight. We know you're already here. We ask you to enter into us, into our hearts and minds. Enter into these words, new words uh, to the church at Rome that have been shared for generations. We know they're applicable to our lives tonight. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. So Paul speaks about prior to Jesus in his saving death and resurrection and the meaning that has for our lives, whether you've got the law or at least have some moral compass in your life, all you all, everyone, you're under the power of sin. That means you're under, beneath, below the weight and control of its domination and guilt and sin and shame. It's not just a, a problem of committing sins. It's a problem of being enslaved to sin. So after proving that all people, everyone, Jews and Gentiles, all y'all are under the power of sin, Paul drives the final nail in humanity's coffin, the spiritual coffin, by using Old Testament scriptures as the hammer. Verse 10 through 12 begins, as the scriptures say. And I want to pause there. One of my biggest pet peeves is uh, when people, mainly pastors, will say, the Bible says, and then they go off and say something. And my first question is always like, well, where? Because uh, sometimes... People like to say the Bible says, and what they end up doing is creating a new Bible that says new things. And so we always want to locate what we're actually saying and if what we're saying is actually biblical. So where is Paul referencing here? What scriptures, Psalm 14, verses 1 through 3, says, No one is righteous, that is, no one is in right relationship with God. Nobody, no one, not a single one is in right relationship, not even one. Nobody, none, not one in 7.7 billion. By the way, these are absolute statements in the Greek text. No one is righteous, not even one. No one is truly wise. No one is seeking God. But wait, I go to church. I pray, I worship, I tithe, I serve. I'm here on Wednesday night. No one is seeking God. Well, 
I feel like I am, at least in my heart, my soul, my mind, my strength. But this is our image, what we look like apart from Christ. Maybe even say B.C. or before Christ. This is what we look like without the Savior, without that somebody to make you right with God. Verse 12 says, all have turned away, all have become useless. No one does good, not a single one. Now, come on, that doesn't feel very good, Paul. But if you're anything like me, you're reading this and you're thinking, well, that's not me. But let me tell us we're wrong. Because apart from Christ, this is what we look like. Unrighteous, that is not right with God. Unwise and useless, to name a few. Well, let's talk about this to the people around you. Apart from Christ, how are we unrighteous? That is not right with God. How are we unwise and useless? Ready, go. All right, let's bring it back together here. I was speaking a couple of years ago in, in Slovakia and in Eastern Europe, and I was giving a, a talk about an image that I like to use from time to time that compares the life with Christ, a life with Jesus at the center, as opposed to a life without God. And I was sharing a, a story about Greytown. And imagine you wake up in the morning and your sheets in your bed are gray. Your pillowcase is gray. The walls are painted gray. The ceiling is gray. You step onto the carpet and it's gray. You walk out the front door, which is gray, into a world that is gray. The, the cobblestone street before you is gray. The buildings beside you with all their windows are gray. The sky is gray. The birds are gray. The trees are gray. You walk into a coffee shop that's painted gray. The coffee even tastes Gray. The steam rising up from the surface of the bubbling hot liquid is gray. You guys are so smart. So I give this whole talk, and uh, there's a girl who comes up, skinny as a twig, and uh, she's Austrian, but she uh, also is a Christian who's serving in a missionary capacity here on, on the team, and she is Austrian, so... She's like uh, the color of snow. That's her skin color. But she was beet red. Really frustrating. Spit flying everywhere. And uh, she comes up to me so frustrated about what I, what I said. I'm like, well, what was it? You know, what rubbed you the wrong way? She's like, the whole gray thing. I'm like, okay, well, a little backstory about her. She had brought her boyfriend uh, to, this, to this camp to hear this talk. Her boyfriend flew all the way from South Korea. Her boyfriend is not a Christian. Side note, probably not a good idea if you're a Christian, especially if you're serving as a Christian missionary, to be unequally yoked. That is not to be dating someone who's not a Christian because it might just lead you in a different way. But anyways, she's got this non-Christian boyfriend who's, who's here and uh, She's frustrated because she says, well, you just said that his life has no purpose and value. <laughs> Whoa, <laughs> I didn't say that. I said it's just lacking color. 
Because what happens when we experience Jesus, he comes in and our lives become bursting with color. It becomes completely transformed. You know what I'm talking about, right? Like the, the things that were gray before are now filled with color. There's a new purpose, a, a, new, a new calling, a new meaning in your life that just wasn't there when you weren't following Jesus, when you, you didn't know the God of the universe in this capacity. Now, you may say, well, my, my friends who aren't Christian, my friends who don't know Jesus, don't follow God, they don't live in a world like that, like Paul talked about earlier here in Romans chapter 3. Well, the American New Testament scholar Robert Mounts, whose son went on to uh, write the textbook of textbooks for, for Greek scholars, Robert Mounts says something like this. I think is, is pretty, pretty profound, and he puts it very nicely. Although it may be true that many of our acquaintances are not as outwardly wicked as the litany would suggest, as what we just read in Romans chapter 3 would suggest, we must remember that they are also benefactors of a Christian civil, or a civilization deeply influenced by a pervasive Judeo-Christian ethic. A lot of big words right there. Let me break it down a little bit. Uh, basically, your friends who don't follow Jesus, they're not as bad as this list looks like. But we must also remember that they live in a world that has been shaped by the gospel of God, God's saving activity throughout human history. So goodness, truth, beauty, all of those things are in the world because of this Judeo-Christian ethic. Take away that beneficent influence of Christian social ethics and their social behavior would be considerably different. You take away that influence, you take away that, that Christian Judeo impact on the world, it's beyond gray. It's darkness. That's life without God. Verse 13a, a quotation from Psalm 5.9 says, Their talk is foul like the stench from an open grave. Their tongues are filled with lies. Like, woo, get this guy a tic-tac. Some Colgate and Listerine stat. I can't even breathe, bro. You been with someone before like that? Like, man, you haven't brushed your teeth in like months. The stench ain't just morning breath. It's death. It's body decomposition, rotting organs and flesh. Do you ever feel like your words are like death? Probably not because you're a nice and kind and spiritually mature bunch. But sometimes I forget that my words hold the power to create or destroy. And I wonder how many relationships have I suffocated how many friendships have I lost because my, my talk is foul and rotten, putrid with the odor of body decomp? How many have suffered death by the bad breath of my words? I find that it's often a slow death. The relationship just slowly dies because she's tired of the bad breath of my words. It's not often an immediate flat line to the relationship. It's a slow fade because he's grown weary of the stench of my lies. 
Their talk is foul like the stench from an open grave. Their tongues are filled with lies. Let's talk about this some more. Why do we speak bad about others? Like, why? Simple question, right? But, but why do we do it? What's our motivation for that? Instead, how can we make sure that our talk is uplifting and loving? Go ahead, talk to the people around you. All right, by a, a show of hands, uh, how, how many people, how many of you struggle with this, um, you know, that your language, your words, your speech is not always 100% uplifting and loving? By a show of hands. Okay, keep, I'm just going to like write your names down real quick. Some of you guys are struggling with the lying part, but you know the uh, the whole thing about speaking bad about others and is our talk uplifting and loving and all that. It actually has to do with like not just verbal stuff too. It has to do with what we post online, Facebook, or even forward or share text and email, I would just say go the extra mile to season your, your, your words with salt and goodness. Um, our children's director, Ashley uh, Keel, she likes to use the F word all the time. The word is fine. That's like warning, 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 red lights flashing, because if you're like fine, and she's like, no, 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 I really am fine. Or sure, that's also another one. Like sure, like what are you, like sure, like you're happy or sad or like send an emoji. You know what an emoji is, right? Send an emoji to go along with that. And then I also think like, listen. What a concept, right? Like if you're, if you're busy talking about yourself the whole time, that's not very uplifting and loving to the other people. Just a thought. There's a lot we can do, and I'm sure that a lot of you had good things to say in your groups about how we can make sure that our, our talk and speech and language is uplifting and clear and loving. But apart from Christ, I know I'm bound to inflict death by the bad breath of my words. Verse 13b continues with a quote from Psalm 140, verse 3. Snake venom drips from their lips. Snake venom drips from their lips. It's quite an image. Deadly cardiac arrest causing poison drips from their lips. It's the natural consequence of a tongue that is filled with lies. I hate snakes. Hate them, but I think it's rather fascinating what their venom does to the human body. Snake venom has a, a toxic effect on the human body in two main ways. By attacking the circulatory system, that's like your blood, and or the nervous system, the network of nerve cells and fibers. When it comes to the circulatory system with your blood, different types of venom can increase or decrease blood flow or blood pressure and prevent blood flow or Create it. It's all bad news. So you get bit by this venomous snake that the venom works in this sort of way. You bleed to death or your blood clots and then you 
you die. When it comes to the nervous system, other types of venom can stop nerve signals getting through to the muscles, causing paralysis. Starts at the head, moves down the body. All of a sudden, your diaphragm gets paralyzed and you can't breathe. You suffocate. Around the area of the bite, also, necrosis can set in as the venom literally kills the nearby muscles and tissues and cells. It's all bad news. And that's what our words can produce. Our words hold the power to create, but they sure have the power to destroy. And I bet you've felt that before. Someone sinks their teeth into you with a harsh word of bitterness, and you feel your your blood just curdle like cottage cheese it thickens. Or maybe some toxic lie has been spoken. And the outrage just sends blood shooting through your veins. Your body temp soars. Or maybe you've said those words that you know you shouldn't have. But you'd rather prove your point and be right rather than loved. And in a moment of clarity, you actually see the effect of your venomous verbiage. They stand there, corpse-like and frozen. It's as if the nerve signals can't get through to the muscles. They stand there, paralyzed by the shock and hurt of your words. Told you it's sobering and the opposite of uplifting tonight. But it's honest and true, even if we don't want it to be. Verses 14 through 20 continues, their mouths are full of cursing and bitterness. They rush to commit murder, destruction, and misery always follow them. They don't know where to find peace. They have no fear of God at all. Obviously, the law applies to those to whom it was given, for its purpose is to keep people from having excuses and to show that the entire world is guilty before God. For no one can ever be made right with God by doing what the law commands. The law simply shows us how sinful we are. Sin has affected every crevice and corner, every cell and fiber of our being. There's nothing we can do to make ourselves right with God. We can't measure up. Effort can't do it. Positive thinking can't do it. The law can't do it. The interesting part about Indiana Jones is that he makes mistakes and gets hurt. He's a real character, not a character with superpowers. The director, Steven Spielberg, once said, there there was the willingness to allow our leading man to get hurt and to express his pain and to get mad, his mad out and to take pratfalls. That's like stupid or, or humiliating action. And sometimes be the butt of his own jokes. I mean, Indiana Jones is not a perfect hero. And his imperfections, I think, make the audience feel that with a little more exercise... And a little more courage, they could be just like him. 
with a little more exercise and a little more courage, they could be just like him. When it comes to making ourselves right with God, that isn't how it works. Effort can't do it. Positive thinking can't do it. The law can't do it. A little more exercise and courage can't do it. We can't measure up. We're snakes, if we're honest. Living in a world where life sucks and then you die. Everything Paul has said up to this point is heading to this. Life sucks and then you die. We're sinful and straight up cold-blooded. We're jacked up and full of sin. Whether we're Jew or Gentile, we're, out with, we're without an excuse for our sin and wrongdoing. We're under the power of sin below, beneath the weight and control of its domination and guilt and shame. We're unrighteous and unwise and useless. And I know it's sobering and the opposite of uplifting, but it's honest and true even if we don't want it to be. We're delivering death by the bad breath of our words. We're causing paralysis and destruction by our venomous verbiage. We're restless and oblivious to peace. We're riddled with sin in every crevice and corner, every cell and fiber of our being. We're unable to measure up. We're incapable of making ourselves right with God. We're snakes, if we're really honest, living in a world where life sucks and then you die. But next week, three letters change everything. Three letters change everything. B-U-T. I want you to know tonight, as we leave off this sobering and opposite of uplifting passage, that Despite our apart-from-Christ identity of no one being righteous, not even one, no one being truly wise, no one seeking God, all have turned away, all have become useless, no one does good, not a single one, despite the fact that apart from Christ, and yeah, sometimes even though we're trying to follow him, our talk is foul like the stench from an open grave. Our tongues are filled with lies. Snake venom drips from our lips. Our mouths are full of cursing and bitterness and on and on and on. God still loved, loves, and will love us. God still pursued pursues, and will pursue us. And I think that's enough for me. That no matter what happens, no matter how sinful or wretched you or I once were or ever will be, God still loved, loves, and will love us. God still pursued, pursues, and will pursue us. Us, and that is the gospel truth. I don't know how you take these words of Romans chapter 3. I don't know how you read them or, or how you feel when you see those words, but I, I see them as my identity before Christ. 
my identity if I didn't have a Savior. My identity when I don't live a life according to the Savior and his ways and his patterns. I see like, man, have I turned away? Has my speech hurt people? It's a wake-up call to realize that, man, we don't live in Graytown anymore. We live in a world of color, even though it seems like everything is gray. Maybe it's our greatest opportunity and privilege to bring color into this world, to bring life into this world, to invite people into relationship with the God who changes everything about us, to realize that, man, you don't have to live like this anymore. The weight of what you're going through, it can be lifted. The burden of what you're struggling under, it can be removed. Because our God loves and cares and sustains and calls us his own. Would you pray with me tonight? God, we realize that we do not any longer live in a world where life sucks and then you die. Because Jesus You've changed everything. Those three letters, B-U-T, have changed everything. That God, you have shown us your true love and true pursuit of us when we were sinners, when we were far away. You've called us back to you into your presence, into your love. Help us to be people who live a life of truth and beauty and goodness, that we would live out your characteristics that you have instilled in us. Would your passions become our passions? Would your desires become our desires? And the funny thing is, when we do that, Lord, when we allow you to enter in and just clean house to make us new, we become more ourselves than we've ever known because you love us and you pursue us. I thank you, Jesus, for each and every person here tonight. I thank you for their love for you. That apart from you, we are unrighteous and unwise and rather useless. But in you, we have great meaning and purpose unlike anything we've ever experienced. We have eternal purpose, unending undying purpose because Lord you are amazing and you are unending and eternal and so we love you and we give you all the praise in Jesus name Amen, Amen.